Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, sitting in for Keeley, who is not here, but we have a special guest. Welcome to our special guest, Grant. Hi. Hi, Grant. Grant, Opera for Everyone listeners will remember, was the original partner with Keeley when this show began not so very long ago. So uh, we're thrilled to have him here because we have a very historical opera. What's the opera we're listening to today, Grant? So we'll be listening to the opera Tamerlano, which is part of a long tradition of talking about this story. There's this kind of epic moment in history, a confrontation between the uh, Timur the Lame, the great conqueror who founded a empire, which is always called the Timurid Empire, which is kind of just his name. So it was his empire. Where was it located? It was located kind of everywhere. It was enormous. It it everywhere. spanned pretty much everywhere. Yeah. He he thought of himself as a world ruler and a world conqueror. It spanned from the cover, encompassing the entire Middle East, encompassing Persia, encompassing large portions of India, and he actually started in Central Asia. So all those countries that have the word stan after their names kind of started as the basis of his empire. All right. Is he our hero? He's the eponymous character, uh, which is to say he's the one that the show is named after, uh-huh. but he's not really our hero. In fact, we, we'll probably talk about this in greater detail later, but if anything, he's a little bit the villain of this story. Oh, interesting. The villain gets the title. Yeah. That... Well, I guess he's a well-known name. Yes. Ish. I mean yes. if you do if you travel in history circles anyway. <laughs> there's a there's a Vivaldi opera that covers roughly the same events that is written a, a few uh, it's a decade or so later and it actually is called Bajazet named after the character who is the actual protagonist but the the Ottoman sultan who comes to comes at odds we'll say with Tamar, Timur, Tamerlane, in this case, Tamerlano is, I suppose, what we're calling Everything sounds better ruler. in Italian. Doesn't it, though? It's beautiful <laughs> language. Yeah, it does. It does. So when is this opera written? So this is written in 1724, which I believe is earlier than a bunch of the other operas you've been looking at recently. Indeed. Yes, very much. I mean, anything in the 1700s has been on the early side for us, but even our seven uh, operas from the 1700s have been late. 18th century. This is early 18th century. Yeah, and the the earliest opera that I've talked about with uh, Opera for Everyone is is arguably the earliest opera, if not, it's up there in the top three or four, and it's L'Orfeo, which is about a hundred years prior to this. We'll actually see some stylistic and other components that are similar between this very very early opera L'Orfeo and. Tamerlano, which is written about a century later, but still a century and change before the great operas of the 19th century that we're and more familiar still with. still all falling squarely in the musical era that we know as the Baroque period, right? Right. Great. Hey, I think it's time for some music. What do you think? That sounds lovely to me. <laughs> all right. So this is an aria by our, our heroic sultan, Ottoman <laughs> emperor, Bajazet. And do you want to tell us anything about this, or do you want to tell us after we listen? Yeah, he's he's a sort of interesting character in the the rise of the the Turks and the Ottoman Empire. And I think there's a lot to be said about the political history and other things. But he is he is our hero 
uh, he is the ruler, uh, sort of our hero. It's it's kind of complicated, but he's he's the he, the ruler of the this great empire, and he has just been overrun by the armies of of Tamerlane, and as a result, he has been taken in chains with his daughter to the court of Timur. Wow, serious operatic drama. All right, here we go. The aria by Bajazet. You're listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL. Thank you. 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL Jackson. I am Pat Wright, sitting in the hosting chair today uh, when Keeley's away with uh, the original partner that Keeley had when she started the show, Grant Wright. And we are thrilled to have him here as we discuss this opera by Handel, Tamerlano. Grant, we just heard a beautiful tenor aria. What's going on in this opera? The general political context here is that there's Timur, Tamerlane, Tamerlano. I'll probably use all three of those terms interchangeably, but it's it's Tamerlano. The character this story is named after is a world conqueror. He has been running around all around and just beating armies in China, in India, in what is now Iran, in what is now Iraq, up and down the, the Middle East. He beat the Egyptian Mamluks and most recently, he has gone into what is now modern-day Turkey and fought a great battle at Ankara and defeated the Ottoman Empire. For those of you who may be familiar with the Ottoman Empire from later points in history, this was actually pretty early on in their history. They were an up-and-coming power, and they had just started to establish themselves and started to expand And it was in the next half century or so that they would take the city that would become their capital city, Istanbul, Constantinople at this time. So at this time, this is uh, set in 1402, they've just been defeated by Tamerlane, who has come out of the steppe. And I think that's part of what's going on here. The steppe. Tell us where that is. Uh, (laughs) the The big space in the middle of Asia, where all the the stands are now just basically the part of Asia that's really good for horses. There's this historical phenomenon of people who live in that kind of strip of the world, and that runs from Mongolia through the stands and really all the way to Eastern Europe, and that is a great place to hang out with horses. And so the people who live there tend to use horses as part of their just day-to-day life. And it turns out that horses are really good for military conquest. So, And if you hang out with them a lot, you're really good with them, too. Yeah, you, you, you get pretty good at riding <laughs> horses and, uh, and, and shooting arrows and the kind of things that make it really easy to run around and conquer the world. Well, be careful. You're going to be talking about people from Wyoming. Not... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, give it a little time. <laughs> okay. But yeah, so history kind of has this repeating phenomenon of people from that part of the world generally going out and conquering areas around them. Anyone else you want to reference? Uh, Well, Genghis Khan is the most famous example. Genghis Uh, Khan? And he founded the biggest empire that's ever existed in the history of the world. But there's lots of other people. The, uh, you know, the Huns, Attila the Hun, comes out of this same kind of area and tradition and set of cultures. More operas. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the Turks themselves actually come out of this. They sweep out of the steppe on their horses and they conquer a little bit of an empire and they start to settle down and establish institutions and palaces and bureaucracies and the kind of things that you have that turn your civilization from being this nomadic, some people would use the word barbaric kind of culture, to something that's settled and civilized, civilized in the sense of having cities. And a lot of what's going on in the action of this play is the contrast between higher levels of civilization, as it would be understood by a European audience in the 18th century, 
and lower levels of civilization. And so the, the fellow we just heard singing, Bajazet, he represents which? Well, he's actually kind of in the middle is what's interesting here. He's, oh. he's, on the, he's on the more civilized end of the spectrum to some extent because he represents this up-and-coming civilized empire with a bureaucracy and so on and so forth. But the actual poles in this play are represented by, on the one hand, Greece, which is represented by a young prince. Greece is thought of in this time period as the, the epitome of civilization. That is what civilization is. Now, from our modern perspective, we can look back and say, well, Greece wasn't really all that, and the Turks had a lot going on. And indeed, we can say a lot of nice things about people from the steppe. Uh, people from the steppe tended to have a high value on law and order. They tended to have a high value on religious tolerance. They tended to have a high value on personal freedom. We can be pretty positive about all three of those things in our modern era and from our modern mindset. But we should remember that at the time, what was striking about these cultures, the cultures of Tamerlano, are that they were ruled by force. The way you got to be Tamerlano is not by being born a king. The way you got to be Tamerlano is not by a winning an election. The you, way you got to do it is... Yeah. You had to wield the sword better than anyone else. Exactly. And he was just a really, really good general. He wasn't actually a particularly good fighter, personally. He was lame. Timur the Lame is the name that gets turned into Tom Orlano. Well, I think it's time for another song. I think that's an excellent idea. I think the next one we're going to play is called Bella Asteria. Asteria, yes. who's she? She's uh, the daughter of the, the Ottoman Sultan. So she's, she's Bajazet's daughter. And she is, the song title suggests she is, she's Bella. She's beautiful, huh? And, uh, and that's going to be a problem, of course, as it always is. <laughs> okay, let's listen to Bella Asteria. Bella Asteria, Bella Asteria, Oh. 
non è più tempo a Stiria, dice l'arvi un segreto a cui legata sta la vostra fortuna di paiatet, di antronico e la mia. Oggi se voi bramate, arranfini i miei stegni, e al genitore darò cortese di battade di pace. Vincitore ciò del mondo non vi rimonde per renderci felici che vincere voi stesso. Son vinto, sì, vi adoro, oh bella. Pensatevi, dove sola dipende, rende del genitore felice il fato. Grande un amico e un vincitor beato. That was Bella Asteria from Handel's opera Tamerlano. And I'm Pat Wright, your host today, sitting in for Keeley while she's away, and I'm joined by Keeley's original partner, Grant. Okay, Grant, bring us up to date on this fabulous story. All right, so what we've got is the Ottoman Turkish Emperor Sultan. We've got, we got a lot of words. I mean, similar but not identical things here. But uh, Bajazet, he's been captured, defeated in battle. He has been taken in chains to the court of Tamerlano. And he is saying that he would kill himself. He would, he would commit suicide, as, as one does to avoid this kind of dishonor. And it's an opera, after all. And it's an opera. They're very, you know, melodramatic, those, those operatic characters. Right. <laughs> but he doesn't want to do that because he's got a daughter who he loves very much. Bella Asteria. And she is also here. And, uh, well, she's, she's very beautiful and desirable. And this causes quite a few problems for everybody involved. She's in love with, and he's in love with her, a Greek prince named Andronicus. Now, there's something a little interesting going on there. Of course, the uh, Greek and Turkish nations don't have the most pleasant history of peaceful cooperation of any countries you could ever think of. But as of right now, these two are in love, and that's all that matters to them. And in any event, neither of their countries is independent right now, because it's all under the rule of Tamerlano. So is Andronicus also a prisoner? He's actually a member of Tamerlane's court, and he seems to have actually played a role in helping the conquest of the Turks, which oh, is complicated. Yes, it's it's very complicated. The the Greeks are wanting to get back at the Turks, and the Turks are now wanting to get back at the Timurids, and kind of everybody's at loggerheads. An interesting thing to point out at this point in the show, because it very quickly becomes clear in the plot that other than Tom Orlano himself, everybody in this play kind of wants the same thing. What do they want? They want that Andronicus and Asteria be able to be together. They want that Tamerlano honors his original engagement to Princess Irene. Oh, a new character. And yeah, they just they they want everybody to pair off the way they're supposed to. Okay. And <laughs> they want everything to be hunky dory happy. Unfortunately, it doesn't 
quite work out like this because there is Tom Rolano. And the funny thing is, even though every other character in the entire play is opposed to him, he is... He's the guy the in charge. King. Yeah. And he can do anything he wants. That's, yeah, that's why they say it's good to be king. <laughs> <laughs> so there's Princess Irene. She's a princess from the Black Sea region. And she is powerful and a good marriage option for Tom Orlano. But he has fallen for Asteria, as everyone seems to. And he's like, no, nah, I don't. I don't need the, that politically convenient marriage. I, I want the, the pretty Turkish girl. Oh, in other words, I'm rich enough that I don't have to marry the one with all the property and the title and everything. I can just marry this. Well, I mean, and the truth is he might have been a fellow who has options to have more than one wife, I would imagine. Uh, well, yes. Historically, he had, he had quite a few. Yeah. Um. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. But here the, the, the question is, does, does he end up with Asteria or does he end up with Irene? And Irene wants to end up with him and Asteria doesn't want to end up with him. So the two women are actually on the same side, as is Andronicus. And Bajazet himself is pretty okay with his daughter marrying the Greek boy. Huh. Although he's mostly emotionally preoccupied by being kind of sad about being defeated and yeah, well, that and, makes sense. <laughs> and he's got a bit of a death wish, honestly. He, like, the way that he's just saying, I'd kill myself if it weren't for this. And then later on in the play, whenever he gets the slightest excuse, he's like, ah, the time to kill myself has come. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, maybe we'll see what happens in future acts. <laughs> <laughs> so are we ready for our next song? Yeah, so we, we just heard Steria and uh, Andronicus singing about each other. There is unfortunately a little bit of uh, mistrust that's that's beginning here because Tom Merlano has decided that he wants to be with Asteria and he's asked his buddy Andronicus to help him with this and this is not really making anybody look good because... Wait, wait. He wants the guy who's actually in love with the girl to help him win the girl. Exactly. He really should Never have a good plan. asked his friend first... <laughs> Uh, what his feelings were, but uh, yeah, he's no, he's in a tricky situation here. All right. So yeah, we just heard them all singing about each other, and I believe next up on our cue is another song from uh, Bajazet. He's talking about how unafraid he is and how he cannot be moved because he does not fear death. Heaven and earth, something. All right, let's listen to that one. Arminis Dei, Arminis Dei, 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL. We are listening to this week's opera, which is Tamerlano by Handel from the early 18th century. And the song we just heard was a wonderful aria but by Bajazet, our captured Ottoman sultan, and Heaven and Earth, Weapons of Outrage, he was just singing about. What a gorgeous tenor voice that was, Grant. Yes. So there's something interesting I read about the the role of the tenor here, really emerging as a leading voice to carry the heroic lead in an opera that that many argue that this opera by Handel is the first time the tenor really takes front and center in, in terms of being our heroic lead. Right, which is interesting because around this time, you oftentimes had heroic leads who were a different kind of singer, which we do have in this opera, although not actually in the recording we're listening to. Right, we're, we're not listening to a reasons. recording from the early 18th century. We're listening to a recording from 1966. So, so what was different back then? Well, you're going you're gonna to make me say it, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> we did not uh, castrate prepubescent young men in order to keep their voices undeveloped. And that was commonly done during this Baroque period. Yeah. And so what you had are you had these these people who were grown men, but who'd never undergone puberty. And so they still had these kind of childlike voices, but with the full power that a grown adult has. And so they were this curiosity mixed with a wonder that they sang and uh, spoke in a way that's completely different from how anyone else spoke at the time and anyone speaks today. And it's basically it's basically a phenomenon that doesn't exist anymore. Very few recordings that that survive from the era, but it was it was made illegal in the late nineteenth century. Right, right. Well, it's pretty extreme gamble that families would take to undergo this procedure on the hopes that he would become a great singer. But the castrati who were successful were enormously successful. So so people did undergo that gamble. Yeah, it was it was seen as one of these ways that you could rise up out of poverty through skill and everything else. But it was it was unimaginably dangerous. They didn't have anything like the sophisticated anesthetics of today and so oh dear. This was chiefly done under the heavy use of drugs that were quite dangerous then and now and would oftentimes result in people overdosing. And it's so, yeah, it was it's a a very dangerous thing um, and obviously a very unethical thing in a quite profound way. But it produced this kind of remarkable art. And so there's a struggle in the modern uh, iterations of this for what exactly do you do with these parts that were written for a kind of voice that doesn't really exist anymore. The version we are listening to, and the roles, by the way, we should mention that were originally written for the Castrati were Tamerlano himself and also Andronicus. And it's interesting, we've looked at some of the historical recordings and the version that we've got actually have a bass and a bass baritone playing these roles. So they've adjusted the roles. Um, more recently, they're in the last 10 years or so in even as recently as the summer and fall of uh, 2017, La Scala was doing a version where Plaza de Domingo was doing the tenor role. But these other two roles, they were done by contraltos. 
or countertenors. Interesting, the highest male voice, the lowest female voice have the have the same range. And so it that's how it gets handled, I think, in most cases in the modern operatic interpretation. Yeah, and if you just if you just look through the the contemporary recordings of this, it's roughly half the time the roles are played by men, roughly half the to- time the roles are played by women, but it does speak to this odd unusual place. And a place by the way that includes a, a massive range. The high and low notes that these parts are required to sing are very far away from each other. Yeah, so you need a pretty skilled singer. Well, let's carry on with our story and with our music. Where do we go from here? So what we've got basically now is we've got everyone peeved at Tom Orlano's changing his mind that Andronicus has now got his king going after his girl, which is a problem. Bajazet has the added indignity of his daughter now being the apple of his conqueror's eye. And poor Asteria doesn't want any of this, and as far as she can tell, Andronicus is cooperating with Tamerlano, or has in fact come up with the idea, because she thinks he's trying to secure the Greek throne, which is to say the Byzantine throne, the Roman throne, the throne of the Eastern Roman Empire. She thinks that he's putting his political ambitions over his love for her and her love for him. Right. Whereas, in fact, we know as the audience that he has, in fact rejected this already he's already said no i don't want to be the king of greece that's not that's not what i'm going for like i mean yeah that would be great but i'd rather stay at your side and what he means is i'd rather stay where asteria is oh that's so sweet so we have a song now that she sings to us yeah because she's she's pretty upset about the fact that the man she's in love with seems to be betraying her for the sake of his political ambitions. All right, let's take a listen to that.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL. I'm Pat Wright. And I'm Grant Wright. I'm sitting in the hosting chair today for Keeley, and I'm joined by Grant, one of the originators when this show started out. And we are listening to Handel's opera, Tamerlano, about the infamous Tamerlane. So we've just listened to Astaria as she sings about her plight, and lots more good, juicy story to come. What's coming up next, Grant? So Austria's kind of upset about the fact that her lover appears to have betrayed her. And in her annoyance at him, she actually probably agrees to, depending <laughs> on exactly how you count it, agrees to marry Tamerlane. And Tamerlane's whole plan is that he is going to marry Asteria, and the young prince is going to end up with Irene. So everyone is not with the person they wanted to end up with, except for Tamerlane, who is the king. And so, and he keeps changing his mind because he is betrothed after all. Yes. Well, you know, he's... He's king. King. He's powerful enough to not care too much about the promises he's made. Yeah. And yeah, so basically what's going on is he's going to... He's trying to arrange a double wedding where... Nobody is happy except for him, because that's what matters. And but He's not actually aware how unhappy the rest of them are, is he? Uh, he gets more aware. At this point, he's not super aware, uh-huh. but he gets more aware. And he, you know, he knows from the very beginning that Irene is going to be incensed about this, that the right. princess is not going to marry him, but is going to marry this random Greek guy. Captive. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so she shows up and she actually spends most of the... She, Irene? She, Irene, shows up and she spends most of the opera actually pretending to be her own messenger. Oh, wow. That's fun. Which is... <laughs> an opera's not an opera without a little bit of a disguise. Of course, you all need to be in silly disguises and uh, ideally very fluffy hats. But the the, the concept here is it, it, it's a lot of what this story is about is about the weirdnesses that everyone has put in and the strange positions that everyone has put in as a result of Tom Arlano's absolute power. Oh. Because of the fact that he is so powerful, and there isn't really in this play any meaningful sense of law or order or promises mattering or desires mattering, any of these things that you might talk about as the the virtues or failings of the different kinds of societies we're talking about, none of this matters because what matters is that Tom Erlano is in charge and he commands and everyone must do as he wills. And so the only thing that counts is his personal will or perhaps whim on a minute-to-minute basis. So the only really way to succeed there is to get him to change his mind and think he's changed his mind because he wants to. Yes, which is... a pretty a pretty challenging thing and it doesn't help that everybody's outraged at him for one reason or another that we've got one guy who is Bajazet is 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 primed to be angry at Tom Rolano just because his kingdom has been just destroyed and Austria is primed to be angry at him because he's disregarding her wishes and Andronicus is primed to be annoyed at him because he's going for his girl and Irene is primed to be annoyed at him because he has broken the betrothal and said, oh, by the way, you can marry my buddy. That's basically the same thing. Yeah, that's 
when she's been contracted to marry to the guy in charge, that's a little bit of a letdown, huh? Yeah. Although, again, he might not be the most wonderful person to be married to at the end of the day anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think the uh, I think the palace is a pretty nice place to live. That's true. That's true. So yeah, even though everybody kind of wants the same thing, this means that we're we're starting to ramp up to people taking pretty different tacts to get it. Okay. That Bajazet is is ever more edging towards that suicide he kept threatening. Oh. Um Asteria has a has a different idea in mind. She's thinking that the way to solve her problems as well as get out her annoyance is to kill the king. And so she gets a dagger to to kill him on the wedding night. Uh-oh. And this puts her at odds with, say, Irene, whose whole plan remains try to marry the king. So, oh, so when you said earlier that they were on the same side, just in terms of how the couples sort out, but yeah, they, they, she's not going to be too thrilled with, Irene's not going to be too thrilled with Estadia right. if she kills her betrothed. Exactly. Or her exactly. formerly betrothed. Yeah, her her once and future betrothed is what she's thinking of it as. Okay, all right, all right. Well, let's let's hear it for Irene. Do we have a song from Irene coming up? So yeah, we have this this song where Irene presents herself as the servant, goes to Tamerlano and says, "Hey, buddy, you gotta marry this Irene chick." And <laughs> presumably, she did so respectfully <laughs> to the king. And and she's like, "You're you're gonna do that, right?" And Tamerlano's like, I don't know. Asteria is great. I'm I'm gonna marry Asteria unless for some reason she makes herself unattractive to me. Oh, and and Irene kind of skulks off. She's unhappy about this, and she goes and talks to Asteria. And Asteria's like, I'll make myself unattractive to him. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> and Irene has no idea what the what the plan is at this point. So she's she actually sings this hopeful song. She's like, Oh, well, maybe. Maybe Asteria's on my side. Maybe this is all going to work out. She doesn't realize that the make myself unattractive to him plan involves a dagger. Right. Okay. <laughs> Let's listen to Irene's song then. <laughs> on Opera for Everyone with Handel's opera, Tamerlano. <laughs> Oh. 
peggio da questi amori nasce strane vicende. Troppo asteria e nemica, molto il tartaro è amante, ed il cor di rene è ogni orgostante. You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for a mainstream audience. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. Opera for Everyone is hosted by me, Keely Heron. And me, Pat Wright. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and like our Facebook page, Opera for Everyone, where you can also send us a message. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode.
welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm Pat Wright. And I'm Grant Wright. We're so glad that you're here. We are listening to Handel's famous opera, Tamerlano. And it's an older one for us here at Opera for Everyone. It's from the early 18th century. And we are pretty excited about this. Grant's been giving us lots of historical background. And Grant, Keeley's not here. So you know what that means. I guess it's my job as your host to put on the opera helmet and try to recap really quickly for anyone who's just turned in at the top of the hour here. Um, Well, we were just listening to our uh, heroic tenor, the captured sultan of the Ottoman Empire, as he is uh, lamenting his fate which is pretty much what he's been doing throughout the entire opera. <laughs> his fate being that of a captive. He's, his, he's been captured by Tamerlane, Tamerlano in Italian. And he is... He's not happy about the fact that his daughter is going to be married to Tamerlane. Tamerlane was betrothed to a princess who would bring him important political connections, and she's well-born. And this is the Princess Irene, and she's on the scene, not happy about the change of events. But Tamerlane's taken a fancy to the daughter of the captive Ottoman sultan. And it's kind of messing everything up because the daughter, Asteria, is expecting to marry Andronicus, the Greek prince, who is kind of an interesting position. He's going to marry this captive's daughter, but he's also a little bit of a right-hand man to Tamerlane. So it's kind of a mess all around. If Tamerlane would just straighten up and marry the person he's supposed to, a lot of the drama of the opera would be gone, I believe. Is that true? That's more or less correct, yeah. <laughs> more or less correct. We'll, we'll go with that. All right. So I'm not <laughs> going to recap all of the, um, the, uh, everything we talked about, but that's, that's kind of where we are on the plot. Did I miss anything important? Yeah. Well, what's everybody going to do about it? What's the, so that's the that's I don't the know. I guess Everybody's... we'll have to listen to the second half. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we got this, this these these plans brewing here to have everybody see what they can do to make the situation a little better for themselves. Right. And the aria we just heard was Bajazet singing <clears throat> at his feet, which is him lamenting his fate. And we're going to come up and we're going to hear another lovely piece. <laughs> I guess it's lovely if you don't mind the title. I want to kill. And this is going to be actually the final trio of Act Two. There's one more act remaining, and it's an action and song-packed act. But I want to kill. Well, who wants to kill whom here? Pretty, pretty much everybody wants to kill somebody is basically what we're getting at here. But it's, it's a trio, and the, the, the three people singing are Tom Orlano, Bajazette, and Asteria. Asteria, as we know, is come up with his plan to try and off Tom Orlano on the theory that that's vengeance or will make her situation better or something. But that's her plan. It's kind of a not a great plan, really, when you get down to brass tacks, but it's the plan she's got. And so through a series of the kind of contrivances you get in these stories, the plan is revealed. She shows the dagger to everyone and said she was going to stab Tom Orlano on the wedding night, and Irene has a part in foiling this plan because she, of course, doesn't want Tom Orlano to be killed. And as a result, Tom Orlano is infuriated, and 
he is talking about killing Bajazet, talking about killing Asturia, just kind of talking about killing everybody. He's the one who says, I want to kill. But, you know, at the same time, you've got Bajazet, who's increasingly in a darker and darker place. And you've got Asturia, who obviously wants to kill Tamerlano. So yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of angst going around here, some Sturm und Drang. It's always a good way to end an act with all of these voices chiming in about how upset they are and how they want things to go their way. Are, yeah. are, are we ready to hear that one? This is the final trio, final uh, piece of music in the second act of Tamerlano by Handel.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL. Welcome back, everyone. We have just finished Act Two of Handel's opera, Tamerlano. Handel, who you may know as the famous composer of The Messiah. He was prolific. He wrote quite a number of operas, didn't he, Grant? That's what I hear. Yeah, that's what you hear? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know better. (laughs) I think one of the interesting things about this opera, as exquisite as it is, he composed it quite quickly, I read. Yeah, it's a matter of days in a year when he composed a number of the uh, his other most famous operas. It's 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 kind of interesting when you read the stories, the composition of these things. How often you find things that are written in this just frenzy of creative output. There are there are counterexamples. There are things that are nursed for authors' entire lifetimes, but especially in music, especially in opera orchestral music, generally speaking, you find a lot of these pieces that are just created out of this act of total inspiration. Right, right. No, it's it's fascinating. And also, one other thing I thought was sort of interesting here, because Handel, of course, not English, not Italian, <laughs> <laughs> but of course, the opera is in Italian, because that's what operas were. They were in Italian. And he was living in London, and it premiered in London. Just sort of a fascinating bit of cultural mishmash, which goes along with the way that cultures kind of collide within the actual story itself. This is a multicultural production in the way that it was produced, and it's a multicultural story. It is a story about a collision of these different kinds of people. Right. You've got someone from... Further east in Asia, you've got the Ottomans, you've got the the Greeks who represent the traditional high point of culture and civilization. Yeah, kind of an interesting mashup and to sort of see how everyone jockeys for position. Well, we've just left them all telling us that they want to kill someone. They're all pretty angry at this point. Oh, yeah. So I have a question. Is this a true story? So it's it's this episode in history that fascinates a lot of people, the uh, confrontation between Bajazette and Tom Rolano. Bajazette was this defeated ruler, but at the same time, in some sense, he represented the future far more than Tom Rolano did. Tom Rolano represented this kind of older system of steppe nomads coming out, conquering civilizations, ruling them briefly. The dying. warrior king, right? A the warrior. warrior king, yeah. And, and and having usually no plan for what happens after they die. Um, conquer. Just conquer. Defeat Empire those guys. <laughs> fell to pieces. Yeah, exactly. They just, they're just all about the conquest. Yeah. It seems to have been about the fun of it as much as anything else. And Bajazet, on the other hand, he's defeated and there's some sense that he's lost and he's diminished and Tamerlane is on the top of his game. But his inheritors become a powerful empire that lasts for centuries and was still present, although not as powerful as it had been in 1724 when the opera was written. Yes. Yes, very much so. Well, let us listen to the first song that we're going to play from the third act, Cor di Padre Andronico. Il mio amore. (laughs) 
Antonio, il mio amore, dalla signora Stelia, a Cristallena, irritato e t'offiso, odiarla, il so, dovrei quanto molto raggia, dovrei punirla, ma che volto, che per forza, si di placarmi, aprò di vaiazzet, frena i miei stendi. Principio in Fausto, io stesso scendo fra queste mura, faccio la voi intenda, ma presente i suoi trionfi, diteli che il mio trono ancora è vuoto, signora. E tempo che Andronico con voi parli d'amante. Ora che non so il colpo, voglio avere i punditi, un rivale con ingrata e non so fermo. Vai a te, che da Siria siano trascinati alle mie mense. Se convenga Andronico e miri in Siria i suoi scorri. Se poi al piace, all'amore suo ritorni. Well, we are deep into Handel's opera, Tamerlano. Much drama happening here. I, I think when I listen to this music, I'm keenly aware of that Baroque feel. I think it's the instruments as well as as just the way that it's all put together. Do you notice that as well? Yes, it's, very, it's a very d- distinctive way of being. And it's, it's part of what places this in a continuum kind of bridging things that are on the earlier side of opera production uh, with what comes to be known as the more, I suppose, more performed, more, uh, more contemporary kinds of operas that you start seeing in the, in the 19th century. And it sort of feels to me like the subject matter is more like the more modern, you know, I'm using the word modern loosely. Of course. (laughs) One must in this field. To me, late late 18th century, 19th century. It it has, in terms of its its topic, what it's discussing, it's sort of this exotic locale, these great personages, an opportunity for beautiful costumes, lush, you know, bejeweled all the things that we associate with the Orient and that we see in a lot of the 19th century operas that want to be exotic as well. Whereas it's my understanding that some of the earliest operas focused more on um, classical themes like from Greek mythology and things like that, like Orfeo did. And and oftentimes had a much more spare aesthetic. Yes, no, this is, this, this kind of production would be all out back when it was originally produced and in modern productions as well because of the nature of it there is this fascination with the with the orient which was rising in the time that it was written because it was it was around the time that the turks had ceased to be this kind of menacing existential threat to europe that uh they had been imagined as for centuries oh, previously oh so you could kind of romanticize them in a way yeah that they they were this this great empire but a great empire clearly in decline, and and there was something that was quite admired in some sense. I'm not sure how much they would say it was admired, but admired in the beauty and the grandeur and the decadence of this. Right. Uh, 
Well, we'll even have culture. a reference coming up soon, I think, to the harem. Yes. Which is always a, a source of fascination for Westerners. Yeah, and, and I mean, there are all sorts of implications about this, the the way that the the dress worked and and how and how power is conceived. Because there is this common idea in Europe in its modern history, and, and indeed before that, thinking of the East as being ruled by these massive despotic regimes. And there's some truth to that. I mean, it's hard to say that they're exa- they were more despotic than anything that's going on in Europe, but it is true that they had massive bureaucracies and they tended to be on a much larger scale, yes. uh, geographically anyway, than any of the countries in Europe. The countries in Europe were were ruled by kings, but relatively few of them were ruled by emperors. And this is a story about we've been calling him a king, but uh, but Timur is he's an emperor, and which that means a a king of kings. All pretty much all the characters are kings. Right. Uh, the Sultan is is clearly a king. Uh, Andronicus is offered uh, kingship. The princess is is king like in rank, as as is I mean I suppose both of the princesses are. And so, and so, what is not the case is that this is not a a contest between kings and commoners or even kings and nobles. This is a contest between emperor yeah. and kings, and the will of kings or princesses is easily ignored by a king of kings. Right, right, yeah. No commoners here. I mean, that's part of what happens in the nineteenth century with some of those operas when commoners are in fact portrayed. It's shocking. We're used right. to them being either from mythology or of the most upper class imaginable. It's kind of kind of interesting. Well, one other comment, one other question I have for you about the story. I, I know I asked you if it was a true story. Okay, we've dispensed with that speculation. But Handel himself, or Handel's librettist here, is not just researching history. He's taking this story from somewhere. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a story that that gets worked through. There are a lot of iterations of this. There's the Vivaldi version, which is a few years later than this one. One of the most important ways that this story gets developed is actually there's a, a Christopher Marlowe play. Christopher Marlowe is probably familiar to most of us as that character from Shakespeare in Love. Love that show. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but he was he was a playwright around the time of of Shakespeare. A little earlier, most of his stuff or had to do with the fact that he, spoiler alert, died young. <laughs> and and he he's most famous probably for Dr. Dr. Faustus. This, oh, yes. This play about a man who sells his soul to the devil yes. for power. Also operatic material. Which is, which is also used as operatic material. And where I'm going with this is... His version of the Tamerlane story has a lot of Faust in it. Oh, it's a rise to power story. It's it's much. It's not focused on the Sultan the way that this version is. It's focused on Tamerlane himself, and there's this interest in how he rises to power and how great he comes to think of himself as. And the climactic scene, he actually burns a copy of the Quran. Tamerlane was Muslim. And that's his way of saying, I am the Lord of the universe. I am oh, it's his way of denying God. Even than God. Yeah. Yes. And so, and so it's got this, this, this echo of Faust that he's acquiring power, but as he's acquiring power, he's rejecting 
morality. He's rejecting God. He's rejecting all things that would, would restrain him, hold him back, cause him to not just do whatever he wanted to. And so there's an interesting development of that going on in this opera, where you've also got this Tamerlane character who's not restrained by anything. There's periodic references to, to God, and I think there's an understanding that the character is at least a Muslim, but he's, he's not restrained by anything. He doesn't care about moral strictures. He, he just he does what he wants to and doesn't really care about the impact in other people's lives. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So so there's some there's some heavy stuff about <laughs> power and morality and how you interact with other people because that's the danger of power is people like to talk about independence and self-reliance and doing what you want to do and living your best life and so on. But there's a danger, and that's one of the interesting dangers that gets explored in philosophical traditions, is the danger of simply doing what you want to do and what that means for the people around you and how they have to deal with that and live that way. Wow. Okay. Well, you've given us something to think about there <laughs> on all kinds of levels. Thank you. <laughs> Let's listen to a little more music, shall we? <laughs> I don't think I have the nerve to even try this in the Italian. Midway through the the third act. <laughs> <laughs> any more any more story you want to bring us up to date on before I play this? Let's 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 listen a little bit and okay. we can talk more about the story. All right, let's do that.
di Asteria e saprai quando mi pose il tuo gran padre io reco a te gran cose alto signor placato e vai a te e di parlarti orchiede Welcome back to Opera for Everyone, Handel's Tamerlano, The Trials and Tribulations of Tamerlane and His Captives. Well, Grant is here to help us with the history and the background, <laughs> and thank goodness, also the plot. Grant, tell us more about this story. So we should probably catch up on all the intrigue that's been going on Oh, here. please, I love intrigue. <laughs> <laughs> so Bajazet and Asteria are imprisoned by... Tamerlane, who has been quite upset by the whole thing where she tried to kill him. Oh, uh, really? He didn't like that? He was not a fan <laughs> of that. It's not a thing that he usually lets go easily. Okay. And he's he's really upset about it. And then he's like, you know what? I, I can cut these guys some slack. Oh, he can be the big man, huh? And he's like, okay, so, so Asteria, you just marry me and we're going to be fine here. <sighs> And, he doesn't learn, doesn't listen. And he says, he says, he says, hey, Andronico, buddy. Andronico, my friend. Do you want to go talk to Asteria and get her to agree to marry me? Oh, still, he's still on about that. And <laughs> at this point, Andronico's had about all he can take and says, no, actually, I'm in love with her and... <gasps> You can kind of shove off. Oh, and, standing up to the big guy. And this this works about as well as you yeah, think it would. Yeah, like it always does. <laughs> right, right, right. And so Tamerlano orders the execution of the sultan, and he says that he's going to have Assyria married away to one of his slaves. And Oh, wow, that's pretty bad. And so he's just kind of, he's done with, with all of them. And orders that they serve him, both father and daughter, that they serve him in a banquet. And oh, just, just to exert dominance, just to just to humiliate them. Yes, Ooh. and I noticed the the social things going on. These people yeah. are of the rank of kings, and they're being reduced to the rank of slaves. Right. And so that's what what he's doing. And meanwhile, there's the discussion of Irene, and maybe she's going to get to marry Tamerlane after all. It looks like he's not going for Asteria, but there's one little last bit of intrigue left, which is that Asteria hasn't quite given up on the idea of trying to kill Tamerlane. And so well, she's, she's got a right to be upset. She's she's yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody <laughs> does. Right. Tamerlane's kind of been a jerk the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so she takes some poison. Her father gave her some poison just in case to oh. kill herself if she needed to. Oh, okay. And uh, he's got some himself. And so she tries to poison the, the king. Oh, you mean instead of killing herself? She's like, I- I've got a better use for this poison. Exactly. <laughs> Her dad's still mm. holding on to his his vial, but she says, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill I'm gonna kill the emperor. And this doesn't work out because guess who comes to the emperor's rescue? Irene. Irene, of course. Of yes. Course. Irene, she wants to to keep her hubby to be in among the world of the living. Right. And so she saves him. But what eventually happens here is that Tamerlane is is further incensed by this and is 
ordering Asteria given away to the slaves, and her father is unable to watch. And so what he does is he takes poison and he sings this magnificent aria that we're about to listen to.
Well, he didn't sound too well there, did he? No, this this did not go very well for him, or or did it? I mean, he's been talking about offing himself since the very beginning of this play. By Gisette. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting what what motivates the the king characters in this. That Tamerlane seems to just kind of do whatever he wants to do on right. a whim. You've got the young idealistic Greek prince who. Just wants to marry the pretty lady. He's a fool for love. <laughs> and then you've got, uh, got this kind of concern with, with his honor. Yes. Which is, which is I suppose, a, a, a different way of looking at all this. It's a kind of nobility. Yeah. Yeah. That was an excruciating death scene as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I know. It's only an opera, right? That people drink poison and then sing for eight minutes right at the top of their lungs <laughs> although he was getting quieter at the end <laughs> a lot of dynamic range in that song yes yeah. it's yes. kind of interesting the changes there yeah yeah it turns out interestingly that tamerlana who has not been persuaded or moved or convinced by anything that anyone has tried to do from the very beginning of the play is actually moved and convinced by this. This by the death of by the this sultan. Display of honor, yeah. That the oh. the sultan had enough, and so he sings his death song and curses everyone present. But he he says, Tamerlane, this is this is all your fault, and 
Mew messed everything up for for no reason and dies. And this is this is the historical part here is that the the Sultan did in fact die in in captivity. I don't believe that I know that he actually poisoned himself, but he might have. What's certain is that he he was in captivity and he and he died in captivity. And this is a romance being told about the conditions under which he died. And what's interesting is that he's actually able to bridge the gap by this by this act and is able to convince Tamerlane to, for once, not simply act on all of his whims, but to try and realize, hey, everybody here could be happy. Tamerlane doesn't want Asteria anymore at this point. And so he does the noble thing, and he goes for Irene, who he promised to marry in the first place. She is obviously delighted. And and she's been quite attentive to him. And and she she's she's been working for her <laughs> approval. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Almost the entire time, disguised, by the way, of course, as her as her messenger. Right. Her line is that she's not here because she's offended. And oh, and, got it. But no, she eventually reveals that it's it's her, and she saves him from the cup. And as a result, everyone except for. Our dear late Sultan is able to live happily ever after. The throne of Greece is given to our friend Andronicus. The Greeks and the Turks are married in the form of the Turkish princess and the Greek prince. And yes. I'm sure that'll be the end of any trouble between those two nations. Oh, we don't believe you for a second. <laughs> but it's interesting. It's this ambiguous ending where our most sympathetic and protagonistic character has died. But the world is looking a little bit more like a hopeful place. And so they sing the song at the end all together about the power of love. Right. And even though you say the one person who doesn't get what he wants, he created a sacrifice that allowed everyone else to get what they wanted. Yes. That's beautiful. Well, shall we hear this altogether hopeful song? Let's hear it.
Well, Grant, I can't thank you enough for joining us here once again at Opera for Everyone. We so appreciate your insights into story and history and context. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. And I'm Pat Wright. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and like our Facebook page, Opera for Everyone, where you can also send us a message. We know that opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. That's why our mission is to make Opera opera for for everyone. everyone.